Hello, and welcome to another mini-sode of Movies We Dig, a podcast about films, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Christy Vogler, and I'm back here with Hannah Bazinaw to do a quick reaction to Episode 3 of Disney's Percy Jackson and the Olympians, a show adapted from Rick Riordan's 2006 book, The Lightning Thief. Welcome back, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing take two. We had technical difficulties, you guys, and this was a very emotional episode. But last time, which our audience didn't get to hear, I had asked you to kind of introduce yourself. You know, what is it you're doing at school right now, and how did you end up helping us out here on Movies We Dig? I'm Hannah, with an H on the end. Very important distinction from Hannah, H-A-N-N-A. Mm, uh, mm. Very it is important. Characters. As a C.H. Christie, <laughs> who had a bunch of K. Christie friends, very important, I must say. Very different, yes. Um, I'm 23. I'm at UA for journalism, and I had like some I had some time to kill, so I took Colin's class on mythology last semester, and then when it was over, I popped in and told him he had a marketing problem, and he found that charming rather than abrasive. So <laughs> that's like, because okay. I was in charge of marketing, so he's like, <laughs> "It was." I realized that <laughs> he's like, "Yeah." <laughs> It's Christie's problem. <laughs> All right. All right, listeners. So like last time, we're going to be conducting a shovel test of this series by giving a brief overview of the episode. We'll provide you some information about the ancient sources from which Rodin drew to tell these stories. And, um, well, you're not going to get a surprise for Hannah today, but down the line, uh, we might have a special surprise for listeners to test your Medusa knowledge. So stay tuned for that in the future. Eventually, once the whole season wraps, and I, I, Hannah, you weren't here, but on the text chain that Colin and Elijah I are on, Colin watched it, and he's like, I literally gasped at the surprise character in episode three. And my response was Lin-Manuel Miranda, Disney's current Christ and Savior. <laughs> and he's like, yep, that's the one. I'm like, mm-hmm. So eventually we're going to get them in here. We're going to do a full discussion. They're watching as well. We're, um, we're just doing our initial reactions. Uh, we are going to re-dissect this entire episode that involved Medusa, which was the one we were really nervous about. I'm going to ask you to both tell us if you digged this episode, but also give us kind of a rundown of what happened. So what do you think? I tentatively dig it. I'm not 100% behind it. I really liked it. It definitely has some problems that we've discussed. I, I think I did it less after yesterday's recording. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, no, no, it's good. I ripped the hour of recording we lost. So this yeah. episode, we see the kids, like Percy chooses his companions, gets his quest from the Oracle via Gabe. Um, not in the book. Oh. We never talked about that, did we? Okay, pin in the Oracle. I want to come back to the Oracle for a little bit, at least. Uh, Percy makes some disrespectful comments about Thalia's pinecone fate, and they get started on their quest where they run into Electo and then Medusa. And the Lin-Manuel Miranda jump scare. Yes! I Yes. At the end, as Hermes. I agree, obviously, that uh, I am actually very conflicted about this particular episode, in part because, again, it was an enjoyable watch. The visuals look amazing. The chemistry between the three uh, main actors for uh, Percy, Annabeth, and Grover, like, that continues to be wonderful. But this whole backstory of Medusa is is rough. 
And, you know, it's a vast improvement, or it feels like a vast improvement over the film where we, of course, got this famous line. Son of Poseidon. I used to date your daddy. Yeah, not great on that front. Um, Uma, please, what were you thinking? So, yeah, we're, we're going to unpack Medusa. A lot of this is going to be Medusa. Before we get to that, I did want to turn to a few other things that I enjoyed about this episode. And I, I forgot to ask you last time, but it's like, how does this oracle scene we have at the beginning of the episode compare to the books? Because like, I had no idea what that what was even going on with like all of a sudden Percy's <laughs> random attic with a creepy old lady. It's like, did this just take a turn? I don't know what's happening. Yeah, they didn't properly explain like at all. But also, I don't know why it was Gabe who like delivered the quest. That's very yeah. good. That's not in the book. It's just like the Oracle. So like to go on any quest, you have to go consult, consult the Oracle first. And she gives you like a prophecy about your quest. Surprise, the Oracle is no longer in Delphi. It's in Chiron's attic. And it's like supposed to be like this dangerous thing. So that's why it's like a corpse. Um, okay. It becomes it becomes a whole thing in later books. I, so they do expand on it. Okay, that's fair. That also just makes me super sad because, again, one of the most powerful positions for women in the ancient world being the Delphic Oracle, now that power was very constrained within religious practices. But still, um, you know, it, she, she got to tell Nero, it's like, yeah, I'm I'm not doing anything for you and things like that. Like, the Oracles had relative power and then having her be relegated as the corpse to the Chiron's attic is like oh don't worry mm. she comes back around that mountain okay okay uh side note I didn't see this but I saw it in a post uh Chiron has a prosthetic leg that I just never noticed in the first episodes did you catch that no I didn't yeah one of his hind legs is a prosthetic leg it's oh, that's cool yeah and uh Rodin explained that he based this off the you know the source material because Heracles was being Heracles, um, and he accidentally shot Chiron in the knee with a poisonous arrow, and <laughs> Chiron can't die, so he suffers with the pain of that injury forever. But yeah, I, and I thought that's what is interesting, and we're gonna get into this is like Gordon is so great about representing disability. And neurodivergency, okay, well, not initially, I guess, right? He gets better about it, and he's trying to improve that in the show. Am well, I wrong? Some, some, I think he is trying to improve it. Something He's definitely trying to improve it, because especially, mm -hmm. like, at the choosing ceremony, we have, like, one of the camp counselors um, is a wheelchair user. Mm -hmm. But, like, in the when I was rereading the books, I noticed that, like, everyone who has, like, a visible disability, like, um, Chiron is in a wheelchair, Grover uses crutches. Mm-hmm. They, like, don't actually have a disability. They're a magical creature of some sort. Right. It's, that's just something I noticed. I can't really comment on it because I have an invisible disability. Mm hmm So I can't comment on that nature. But it is something I noticed. Yeah. Yeah, and it's something... The same with Medusa's stories. Like, he recognized that in his book, there's something problematic about the way that he had told it back in 2006. And so, like, I, I really... That's what I will always appreciate about Rorden is, like, he listens to his fans he listens to critiques and he you know he understands it's like what is actually worthwhile to change 
about my own intellectual property, to, about my own thinking, right? Um, to make it more accessible. And I greatly appreciate that because the, <laughs> the go-to text for my generation is, is of course Harry Potter and JK Rowling is no shining example of that uh, at all. So like- JK Rowling trigger warning. Yeah, sorry, we won't talk about it anymore. Um, okay, so Oracle, thank you for explaining that. We have no idea why Gabe is like a noxious gas coming out of her mouth, but maybe that explains it in and of itself. The green mist is something that happens in the books, but like a little vision of Gabe. Yeah, I don't know. I I can't speak to that decision. And it's, you know, it's really interesting to think about what the message is too then, right? Like here's a person that Percy does not actually trust whatsoever telling him a friend is going to betray you and he has to believe it. Right. And that's, that's kind of the emotional roller coaster he's going throughout this episode is like, he wants to, he's making decisions because he wants to trust and believe in his friends for the success of the quest and for the success of getting to his mom. But he, he has all these doubts. Right. And it came from Gabe via Oracle. And it's like, man, that's just this poor kid. I swear. They are gaslighting him everywhere. Like, it sucks. So, like, Gabe was a very funny contradict, like, as to what I was expecting. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting how they keep trying to bring that actor back for Gabe. So, but then, as you pointed out yesterday, there's no bus explosion and there's no Gabe going on TV being like, yeah, this kid's a terrorist. Like, like I hate Gabe, but that stuff's fucking funny. I love that. They're, like, a whole little, like, fanfics surrounded by the fact that, like, if you came across Percy Jackson in the wild as, like, a mortal person, you'd just be like, who the fuck is this person? <laughs> you were a terrorist at 12. Alleged terrorist. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about the bus scene a little bit, because that was um, where some difference came into line. And it was one of also my favorite cute moments between the trio, because Anna Beth is like, all right, I'm going to go get the snacks. Chips and, chips and soda sound good, guys. And Percy's like... Dude, dude, how, who decided you're in charge? And and I want to get off this stupid, stinky bus. And I appreciate Annabeth explained very clearly why Percy did, could not get off the bus. And Grover panics and starts to sing the consensus song. Very Grover like, thing to do. I feel like would get you ostracized by any preteen group very quickly. Just saying. Theater kids, am I right? Also, sidebar... I'm doing a lot of sidebars. We learned in an earlier episode that Grover's 24, technically, right? Yeah, they never explained that. <laughs> they just threw it in there. He's just like, I'm 24, car crash. Um, the, yeah. the explanation is that satyrs age at like half the rate that humans do. Okay. So they did life's... not explain that. <sighs> no, it's like, I'm 24, hanging out with a bunch of preteen kids. And I'm like, Maybe more context there, you guys. I don't know. Back it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it feels a little weird. I'm just saying. All right, so so we get that. And then eventually, like, they give in to Annabeth. And there's a little throwaway line from Percy that I absolutely love. And it's like, our voting system is broken. And it's like, I love that that's just a subtle nod to what's going on in the United States right now. Because I always appreciate those little, almost fourth wall breaks, right? Like, mm-hmm. We're in a fantastical world where all sorts of crazy things are happening. But you know what? Weird things are happening in the real world, too. So I appreciated that moment. 
I thought it was funny that, like, okay, like, if I was going to go into, like, a, a gas station and grab a snacks, I would be like, what do you want to drink? Do you want Dr. Pepper? Do you want a Coke? Annabeth is just like, soda and chips, which I know is probably for, like, licensing reasons, but, mm-hmm. like, she goes in there and she doesn't know what to pick. And she's a year-rounder at camp, so she doesn't ever do this. It's very much giving, hello, my fellow kids. Yes. Yes. This is also the moment that I think is kind of interesting because we're getting some insight both into, like, monsters and how... I'm still not 100% clear on, like, what is being used to define monsters in Rorden's world. But we do get this interesting mechanic explained where they... They're the ones who seek out heroes, and it, they don't do it necessarily by sensing the, how powerful a demigod is, although that can be a component. What Grover says they actually can smell is dependent on the monster. And then I thought this this was kind of a cool quote because it very much is like Grover describing the group as a whole because he says, Different monsters sense different things. Inadequacy, which is Percy. Need for glory, which is Annabeth. And then shame which is Grover, because of his previous failed mission to protect Annabeth and Talia and Luke. So that's that's interesting. I kind of, that mechanic, I think, is it makes sense, and it's helping us better understand monsters. But I think I, I pointed this out the other day. It's like, that's really interesting to think that in Percy Jackson's world, the monsters seek out the demigods, because that's not how it works in Greek mythology. It is always the heroes going and seeking out the monsters to slay them. And I feel like it's interesting messaging because I think in our world, we wouldn't be okay with that, right? Like we wouldn't be okay with just children just randomly going monster hunting and just killing monsters because they can. We are more okay with the idea of Percy and his cohort defending themselves from attacks. We find that socially acceptable. Well, to be fair, it's like... Some of these monsters that the heroes killed, like the Crimean Sal, you know, they're not just like hanging out like Medusa was there. Right. They're causing some mischief. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting difference we see between ancient sources. Like a lot of times, you know, some of the worst monsters that attack other people are, are the heroes themselves. Or you get like certain characters in Theseus's myth of like guys living on the highway and they're like scamming people by cutting off limbs to make them fit in a bed properly or, or Christie's like we see him in this in this season oh good <laughs> excited for that it's Krusty's mattress shop <laughs> oh dear but like I think I think that's always interesting right is like the monsters even the minotaurs like the minotaur is trapped in a labyrinth people are being sent to the labyrinth to the minotaur to be killed Hunger Games core. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I thought that was an interesting change, and I think it makes sense for our day and age of why Rorden did it that way. Because we believe in self-defense. We believe in the right to take a life as long as it's to protect your own life or someone you care about. Yeah. All right. Uh, so the other scene that I wanted to talk about before we dive into Medusa was when they're walking on the satyr's path before they get to Auntie M's. And everyone's kind of upset with having to abandon the bus. And Annabeth asks Percy, it's like, what are you afraid of? It's like, you're not just a kid. You, Percy is like, hey, things are not going to plan. I think we should ask for help. Like, we should call someone at the camp or maybe call your mom to, like, help us out. 
And Annabeth's immediate reaction is like, we have to do this on our own. You can't just act like a kid right now because, you know, you have magical water powers to take out Clarice and you have the Furies being sent by Hades to capture you. And I thought that was so interesting because to me, Percy is perfectly reasonable in both being scared and seeking help. That's a very reasonable response. And Annabeth's is... We have to do this on our own. We don't get to be kids anymore. And I thought that was really reflective of their home lives growing up, where Percy had one caring mom who he could turn to for help. Annabeth did not. Annabeth was also neglected. Um, mm -hmm. So she ran away from home when she was seven. Yeah. And, and then they kind of just played that off in the books, which I've always had beef with. I was like, she's just going back. <laughs> Yeah. Like, how bad does it have to be that a seven-year-old runs away? I I think that was a really interesting moment, and it makes a lot of sense to me because children who suffer neglect or abuse, like, they lose out be on being a child. They have to grow up very quickly. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to see playing out here in that conversation. So that was everything I had besides Medusa for the episode. Was there any other kind of observations you had um, for this episode that you thought was interesting or problematic? Percy was very funny this episode. She met a pinecone's fate. Absolutely foul. How could you say that? <laughs> when he says, he like, the final lines, we would never be so impertinent. And it's like, I'm going to be impertinent. And I'm like... That's a quote from the that. book that I love. Um, it's like, I am impertinent. Yeah. Which I appreciate. Now, is it the reaction and emotional state I wish he was in at the end of this episode? No. But it's better than nothing, so... I did kind of read it also as like a, you created Medusa, so he's throwing it mm -hmm. back in their face. So I at least, yes. it, I did at least go with that a little bit. As I stated last time, you know, there's this question based on the ancient sources, if Medusa ever actually killed anyone on her own. Most of the ancient sources just tell us that as part of her curse, she was given this ability, um, not necessarily to turn people to stone, but anyone who would look at her or another Gorgon, would not walk away with their lives. That in no way indicates that she used that ability. You know, when she does use that ability, when she's been beheaded, and Perseus is using that her head as a tool to take out all of his enemies. She may and have never hurt anyone, but her body was used as a weapon in death. Exactly, right? And so what I appreciated here is that he's like, no, no one can, no one can be able to find this and use this. And you're right, I, I read the end of the episode is like hey you guys created this problem and you need to resolve it that's what we figured out from our first discussion percy is coming to the realization that like he wants the gods to take accountability for their actions what i hated is that it looks like annabeth really contemplated how useful it would be to have a gorgon's head on their quest they do use it in the movie yeah they take it with them in the movie interesting what happens in the book what do they do with it oh they did the same thing in the book they okay. not take it with them. They they send it back to Olympus. Okay. I, I am impertinent that. is like a direct quote from the book that I was really looking forward to. Cool. Okay. I do appreciate that. Which I guess now brings us to Medusa. I think I'm going to go ahead and play the clip um, where we get Medusa's origin story so we can see what they did with it. And then we'll talk about like, how does that compare to the book and the film? And then we'll dig deep into everything else about it. So here it is, guys. Do you know the story of how I came to be this way? Athena was everything to me. I worshipped her. I prayed to her. I made offerings. She never answered. 
Not even an omen to suggest she appreciated my love. I wasn't like you, sweetheart. I was you. I would have worshipped her that way for a lifetime. In silence. But then one day, another god came and he broke that silence. Your father. The sea god told me that he loved me. I felt as though he saw me in a way I had never felt seen before. But then Athena declared that I had embarrassed her and I needed to be punished. Not him. Me. She decided that I would never be seen again by anyone who would live to tell the tale. Yeah. We said this yesterday, and I will say it again. The actress who plays Medusa. Jessica um, Parker Kennedy. Thank you for learning. Jessica Parker. I like that. Jessica Parker, Parker Kennedy. Kennedy. Nice. So Jessica Parker Kennedy. I think the article I read from Variety about this episode specifically just referred to her surname, Kennedy. She played this role with the assumption that Medusa was a survivor of sexual abuse. I think right before that clip I played, she describes herself as a survivor as well. So she went into this planning to use the language of someone who has experienced sexual abuse or assault and someone who survived it and how, how she's coping with it. She also talked about how for her, the the curse aspect, because right, she she changes that. She explains that her curse of turning people into stone is actually a gift. Annabeth's like, my my mother cursed you. It wasn't a gift. People go back and forth on like, what was Athena doing? Athena was definitely cursing her in the, yes. in the myth. Let's be clear. I mean, I know the girl boss version is that she was gifting her, but like, what kind of gift is that? To like be for be alone forever is not a gift. It's not a gift. And then Athena sends someone to behead Medusa, and then she puts their head on her shield. She was not looking out for Medusa. Yeah, but I appreciate that I had like that duality of the stories, which is like it was a curved curse, but I turned it into a gift. I think the article mentions suffering the trauma that she did. She is now inflicting the trauma on others, and that's how we end up with all of those statues. But, like, she's also using it to make a garden for herself, to find peace for herself. And maybe not to be alone, because I don't think she wants to be alone, right? That's that's what she describes the curse as, is that no one will really be able to look at her, or she'll be Give invisible. Give her a blind girlfriend. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. She deserves it. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, Sophist, please, take this away. It do all of the magical things you do in fanfic with her story to make it not a tragedy. But sadly today, we are talking about the tragic figure that is Medusa and how well they did with it this time. I will say, I think we both agreed that we did appreciate the attempt to humanize Medusa in that story to explain like where she's coming from. We've like, it felt like a good setup, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought what was re really interesting with her introduction is she has beef with Poseidon and Athena, very understandably slow, but when she meets the children, Percy and Annabeth, she she recognizes she can't hold that grudge against them because they're children. And she actually offers them Xenia. She offers them a place of protection from Electo, who's chasing them, and food. And so this goes back to, I, I skipped this earlier, but like this goes back to the whole idea of like, how are we defining monsters? Which is a big question that Sally presented at the beginning of the series. And like even Electo and her sister, the Fury, like that's frustrating too, because I don't believe in Greek myth, they would have been perceived as monsters. They're actually very righteous figures from the underworld. So they're the Aranes. There were three goddesses of vengeance and retribution. Okay, that sounds bad, but... Oh, I love vengeance and retribution. I'm a big fan of it. 
I am too when it's deserved. And guess what? They do it when it's deserved because they punished men for crimes against the natural order. They were particularly concerned with homicide, unfilial conduct, I do like that description, offenses against the gods, and perjury. Don't lie, apparently. What exactly is unfilial conduct? Unbrotherly. So, so the breaking of Xenia, for instance. Breaking the bro code? breaking the bro code they came after your ass for breaking the bro code that they did well i mean that's really important too right like oh and if you travel you you don't you know, there's no hotels for you to go stay in safely and even then hotels are still being usually run by individual families so you're kind of hoping that when you go to spend the night somewhere that's not your own bed they're not going to kill you in the middle of the night right uh, so to clarify for those who don't know can you like tell me what zinnia is yeah, so Xenia is this custom of hospitality. It is expected of both host and guest. That kind of guarantees the safety of each party, mostly like the guest in that case, because like, you know, they're on unfamiliar turf. But it's also this idea that you show respect for each other too. So the whole Trojan War, supposedly, is the result of the breaking of Xenia because Paris went to the court of Menelaus and stole away his wife. Even if he hadn't stole away with uh, Helen, if he had just like slept with her one night and then went home, that still would have broke Xenia and Menelaus would have been justified in either calling down the Irenes to deal with it or he just decided to take care of it himself. Okay, we're calling the Irenes monsters even though there's not even a strong indication that they're planning to commit violence against Percy. They're just, eh. they've been, t they've been told to take him to the underworld. Okay, did Mrs. Dodds not attack him in the middle of New York? Or was she trying to retrieve him? She was attacking him, Christy. <laughs> she, she, she wasn't gentle. Okay, think about what her Listen. job usually is. Like, think about the men she's usually having to chase down. Maybe she's just lost her touch of like... Oh, small child probably won't put up much of a fight. I can't, I can't give you this one because you don't get into someone's white van when they're like, yeah, kids, I'm taking you for a ride. You can't just trust her to take you to the underworld. Unseen. That's fair. That's fair. I'm saying they could have played her better to actually be a representative of what the ironies were. So like, but, but it's no surprise, right? They're trying to villainize them because we need to feel okay about children killing them. Yeah, we, to be fair, they're never really dead. You did ask me why Medusa's head, it stays around when supposedly monsters are supposed to disintegrate. It's because it's like considered a spoil of war, which is, mm -hmm. which is fucked up. Yeah. But like similarly to how the Minotaur's horn sticks around, like when Percy like kills the Minotaur, mm -hmm. the horn stays behind and it's because it's considered a spoil of war. You get to take it with you, just like yeah. Medusa's head is. The rest of her body disintegrates but we don't get to see that because her body is invisible yeah which was an interesting choice but interesting choice that we'll get back around to but the way monsters work in the Rorden verse is that when they die they spawn back in tartarus okay and then they like spend their time making their way out okay so they always come back around eventually there's no real way to forever kill a monster we're definitely seeing a more black and white idea of monsters in the first mm -hmm. book um, yeah. it, it starts to develop shades of gray and nuance in the second book with like Percy's half-brother Tyson, who is a centaur, a centaur, mm -hmm. no, he's a cyclops. Um, mm -hmm. and then, you know, Percy has a bad habit of making friends with Titans and the hundred-handed ones, Hecatonkeries, Hecatonkeries. Yeah. We do eventually get a little bit of nuance, but not mm -hmm. in the first book. I think I had commented on this last night is like, 
I like the attempts and the improvements they've been making to the Medusa story. I think I hate that her beheading is introduced so early into Percy Jackson's storyline because I feel like it should have been built up to a lot more. I can kind of reconcile that because basically Medusa's like purpose in the story as of this point is to be like, yeah, so Percy's not wrong. The gods are fallible. And that ties back to Annabeth being like, you're not just a kid because Annabeth is a parentified child. So like mm -hmm. she's like, she's saying the gods are fallible, implying that they shouldn't be sending the feelings after children. And Annabeth's response is basically, nah. -uh. Yeah. Which I think brings us to the moment where things turn with Medusa's depiction. I really appreciated that there was also this throwback to the conversation that Sally and Percy had about Medusa's story. Because when the children have to choose between running away from Electo and hanging out with Medusa, Percy's like, you know, my mom has told me stories about her. I don't think she's that bad. I think we should trust her. And he takes up her offer of uh, lunch, right? And he turns on that dime real quick, though. He does. I... And I don't even know that he turns necessarily. He just no longer advocates for, which is still really painful to see because Medusa is very open, right? She is so open with her story and who she is to share that with the children. And this this is where things start to become upsetting. And I don't think it's problematic that it became upsetting at this point because she tells her story, which we heard. And Annabeth's reaction is literally to say, that is not what happened. And you are a liar. And again, Kennedy, the actor, at that moment, she'd been so open with them. And all of a sudden, you kind of hear her her voice almost start to break. And she's like, is something burning? And she withdraws. She pulls back. And that that's kind of the moment that she can't trust at least Annabeth. Why she thinks she has to take out Grover, I don't know. But like, Grover's Annabeth's not doing a single damn thing. He's eating his food. He's accepting that Xenia. Yeah. Zinnia. He's, he's, he's being a good boy. He is. Yes. He, he's just chilling. And I think this moment is so hard to watch because first is coming from Annabeth, this knee-jerk reaction to call a, a survivor of sexual abuse or assault a liar. And at that point, as I had mentioned, it's like Percy, who had before been advocating, it's like, we should trust her. We should give her a chance. He's silent. He doesn't like defend her which is weird because he has no real ties to the gods right like he's pretty upset by his dad i mean he doesn't necessarily defend her in that moment but he does go after her yeah. which i think says something and then he apologizes yeah, for that Annabeth's is true behavior. and that's all of like what it takes to be a good ally to someone right is sometimes it's really hard to stand up in a moment when conflict could be present and advocate for someone that that's probably one of the hardest things you can do and he took the time to go and talk to medusa afterwards and apologize but again that apology should come from annabeth it should i like you mentioned we're coming back to medusa in episode seven or like this topic will be touched on again i'm really hoping that we get some annabeth being like yeah. oh i fucked up yeah I, I that's what i'm really hopeful too now again her knee-jerk reaction is a reflection of our world today right like that has been the huge me too movement thing that we've been talking about is like if someone comes out as a survivor of sexual assault sexual abuse they have been made silent invisible and been told to their faces that they're liars, right? It couldn't have happened that way. I think this moment was so hard to watch because it was the truth. Like kids are socialized to take in this culture and to react in those ways. 
And even though I hate that it's coming from the only other female character in that scene, it also makes sense because it's Annabeth's mom that Medusa is speaking out against. Someone who contributed to the abuse she experienced. And so that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to hear my parent as a yeah. person who did bad things. Yeah, especially for a young kid, right? Who, Annabeth, as we said, she's seeking glory. She wants her mom to notice her in a lot of ways. And to all of us sudden hear like your hero, the person you are aspiring to be like and want the attention and praise from might not be a good person. What do you do with that as a kid? It's like, that's, that's my life goal right now. What do I do? So yeah. hard moment to watch believable moment to watch i will say but uh, at that moment it's like okay i don't know how this is gonna go and i am currently oh, i'm in a glass case of emotion that is what i was feeling halfway through this episode i'm like oh, this is hard this is really hard i appreciated that they were adding they're trying to add mm -hmm. nuance to her character but in some ways i felt like it hindered it a little bit because she's waffling back and forth in between when she does like become like a quote unquote monster and like hunt the children it's kind of like percy didn't even percy only implies right. to make a choice like he doesn't even like necessarily say anything he's just like can we not kill my friends and they're in a basement and there's fire going down a wall and now the fight is on and it's like what just happened i don't quite understand and like why is the basement intended, like, implied to be worse than, like, the fact that she has a garden upstairs full of monsters anyways? You know, the merit of the film, where it's like Uma Thurman plays Medusa like a villainous badass. I have a grudge. I'm going to take out that grudge on people because I can. And it makes it so much easier to be like, yeah, behead her, please. Because, like, ain't nobody want that energy in the world. And that goes back to the, the cave of, like, all the victims. Again, that is an invention by a male creator. It's Ray Harryhausen, right? Who did all of the stop motion puppeteering stuff for Clash of the Titans, Jason the Argonauts. Th there's literally an interview of him going, hmm, Medusa, you know what would make her look cooler and scarier? Half woman, half snake. And then she's gonna have a lair that's dark with like flames in the background. And that's where Perseus is going to fight her. Yeah, I was gonna say, Percy killing Medusa so early on and then it being revealed that Medusa is not totally like what they thought she was kind of does feel like an inversion mm -hmm. of the Perseus myth because that's Perseus's kind of only thing he ever does. Like he saves mm -hmm. Andromeda afterward and like does some shenanigans, but that's like his big thing. Then he just kind of chills out. This is just the beginning of Percy's story. Yeah. Again, going back to the Variety article, we said, okay, the actor is trying to portray her in a way that I think is really powerful. The Rick Rorden has obviously changed the storyline like three times at this point. Well, he wasn't involved in the movie. That makes sense. He hates the movie. He won't do like any crossovers with like, mm -hmm. a lot of people wanted to see Logan Lerman mm -hmm. play Poseidon, but he, he is just not doing that because he hates the movie so much that he wants it to be like entirely separate, yeah. which is fair because when you have someone who bastardizes your work so badly, I would also be really upset and not want it included at all. Talking about male creators retelling Medusa's story, I think where I have some qualms about the way that this portrayal was trying to do it is the place of the creators and what they had to say about it. So I have these two quotes from the magazine. One comes from John Steinberg, who was the creator director for the Percy Jackson series itself. And he credits Daphne Olive. So I'm glad there was a woman involved in like helping to steer the storyline but the way he explains the medusa story is this and everybody's got an opinion about what went down there's no version that is the version if athena and poseidon were in that room you'd get three different versions of that story and 
I'm going to follow this up real quick with Rorden's quote. There are many versions from ancient times of what happened in that temple with Medusa and Poseidon and Athena. Who's to blame? Who's the abuser? What's the real story? It's fiction, but it certainly is important to acknowledge that there is abuse involved here, abuse of power. That is really frustrating because it it seems like they're trying to, you know, throw doubt on Medusa's story. It reads very much like his wife, Becky Rorden. She's very like, she's a, one of the producers of the show. Mm-hmm seems very much like it was kind of like she twisted his ear and she was like you're gonna put this in there Rick yeah she's she's quoted quite a bit in the article too of like the choices made about Medusa's story it feels like they're like they can't see it in their own words like Rodin's acknowledging there's an abuse of power of those three individuals Athena Poseidon and Medusa who has the most power to victimize someone else Certainly not Medusa. No. And that's the problem too, right? The versions of Medusa's story are not coming from Medusa, Poseidon, and Athena. They're not coming from, because as Rorden points out, it's fiction. This isn't a woman's version of what happened. All of these stories that we have preserved from the ancient world of Medusa and Athena and Poseidon are written by men that's it like it's always her story has always been written by the perspective of privileged men in ancient society those who are literate those who had money and resources that they could spend time writing down these stories and those who profited off of it by putting on plays or things like that right they weren't invested in medusa's story as a survivor it didn't matter medea and medusa getting screwed over by men even when it's like presented as a feminist take yeah and i think I think that's what's frustrating is these two male creators who are, again, telling Medusa's story. They they are correct. There are multiple versions of Medusa's story over time. The majority of the ancient ones were written by men. We don't know what kind of stories women were telling about Medusa in that time period. And I guarantee you they were. It was just still oral history, oral storytelling, a bedtime story they say to their kids. That's that's why Rorden is interesting because Rorden was telling bedtime stories to his son. And I think that's really interesting. And we see how different that version, it's true in some ways to the ancient sources, but it has a flair unique to Rorden because of that and I think that's the one thing I I get upset about with their intentions it's like you have good intentions you're not aware of the limitations of those sources that you're pulling from Mm -hmm. okay so this brings me to the part that I actually hate about this episode honestly Medusa has to die yes because her story in this case is a tragedy. She's a tragic figure in this moment. Disney has presented this not necessarily as like good versus evil. It's two different sides of an issue. Medusa's like, you can't trust the gods. You shouldn't do their bidding. And Annabeth's very invested in believing in her mother and completing a quest, completing the expectations laid out to her and the other demigods by the gods. And, you know, Medusa very clearly presents this to Percy. She calls out to him. It's like, are you going to save your mom? Or are you going to do the bidding of your father? father and it's you know that's a legitimate question that Percy himself is trying to figure out he's he wants to achieve both right mm-hmm. but I think Annabeth and Medusa are both you have to decide one or the other and Percy is understandably like mm, yeah no yeah good for him <laughs> he is good for thinking him. critically uh, at this time ultimately the decision of Annabeth and Medusa is destructive and that it must be kill or be killed I I went back and forth on how I feel about Medusa's death. In some ways, I do feel better not seeing her body and not seeing that violence against women. I agree. I it's just the the very act of making it invisible though. I 
feel like it could have been done in a way of misdirected camera shots, especially like bring back that element of looking at the reflection of something and then like just have an arm swing out, right? And a sound. Strategically, great move of like the three of them working together to solve the problem, right? So it's like one's a distraction, one throws on the hat and one actually does the deed. Yeah, Grover trying to come up with a plan and immediately flying away. (laughs) It was very Grover of him. I loved it. We're just, we're to the point, right? They have to kill her. And I understand that she has to die, but it's the reaction of the children afterwards. There is no remorse. There's no reflection on what they just had to do to a woman who initially had been kind to them. And instead, they broke Xenia. They broke Xenia. They did. They did it first. It was on them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I, I finally just got mad because all of it was upsetting to watch. But again, our current world is upsetting to watch most of the time. So I was accepting of it. But the lack of remorse from children, and not only was it the lack of remorse, it was all of a sudden turned into a full on team building exercise of, oh, we're all good now because I killed a fury for you and I beheaded Medusa for you. Yay, team. And I absolutely hate that. There could have been like a serious conversation of what just happened and still have that bonding moment at the same time. So I think that is where I am upset. And if the episode stands as it does now, I would say this was a fail. Now, as we've discussed, we're going to revisit the storyline in episode seven, where we're apparently going to get more background story between Poseidon, Sally, and Medusa. So there is a a chance to redeem this moment, but I wasn't happy by the end. Yeah. I was less happy when I heard your take, which is, which that's not like a, how dare you? That's more of like a, thank you. (laughs) I am a soul crusher and I'm here for it. In the end, it's like, I'm upset with the way she's slain. It's not necessarily wrong that she is because her story is a tragic story, but I think what it's missing is the catharsis. Like, what are we supposed to take away from this? Because again, the message of like, who's a monster and who's a hero, it was just reestablished into those traditional roles in the end, instead of making it more gray, which is what they're trying to do, but it's not paying off currently. And we're only in episode three. I do like that Disney and Rorden have kept her a tragic figure because tragedy is really important. Like Disney is known for its happy endings, right? And, you know, Greek tragedy does not give you a happy ending most of the time, but that's still important. I'm glad a lot of thought went into telling Medusa's story again. It still, you know, failed on some levels, but it was, you know, it continues to improve on what it has been in the past. And I I do appreciate that. There's kind of some insidious things here about our culture and how we treat survivors of sexual assault um Mm -hmm. that's being portrayed but in the end not questioned in this episode at least and i'm hoping we have that moment of questioning um soonish by episode seven if it's not there i'm going to be very upset with percy jackson i must say yeah that's fair i will also be upset yeah especially because like if if they're just trying to do an unnuanced take that's one thing but you can't introduce nuance and then like ignore it yeah yeah you can't humanize someone to just then kill them off. Uncle Ferdinand wasn't even scared. What was the point of that detail? I know. What was the point of that detail? You could have not mentioned Uncle Ferdinand at all, and I would never know. Do I need an Uncle Ferdinand backstory now. Oh, we have that briefly, but not why he wasn't scared. Um, it's the idea that, like, these satyrs, like, they get their searching license, is what it's called, and they go looking for Pan oh, okay. to bring him back to the wild. All right. Any further concluding thoughts on this episode? I think that's just about it. All right. Right now, her story, Medusa's story, is a tragedy without any catharsis. I need the payoff eventually. So time for the outro. 
Special thanks again to Hannah for bringing her Percy Jackson expertise to this mini-sode. We'll hear from her again soon when we screen episode four of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, which I think will also be kind of fun because I'm pretty sure we get Echidna and the Chimera next. We do, yes. Yes mother of monsters. Let's go. As for you listeners, you can find us on most major streaming platforms as well as MoviesWeDig.com. Please like, review, and subscribe if you like what you hear. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Blue Sky under some variation of the handle at MoviesWeDig. Let us know what you thought about episode three, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.